Hello, everyone. We're so excited that you're here today. My name is Elizabeth Cho. I'm an assistant attorney general with the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. On behalf of the Boston Bar Association's Health Law and Privacy Committees, we would like to welcome you to data management and protection in a public health emergency. I'll turn it over to Peter Lefkowitz, who's our moderator today, and he's the Chief Privacy and Digital Risk Officer at Citrix. Thank you, Liz, and, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, we're getting to the end of the academic year and the end of the panel year at the BBA, and we're thrilled to have a, a final opportunity to bring this to you. Um, I am really fortunate today. I get to moderate um, some tremendous experts um, in the area of privacy and security and digital health um, and research. So with that, let's get on with it. Um, as Liz mentioned, I am the Chief Privacy and Digital Risk Officer um, at Citrix, um, and I am an outgoing co-chair of the Privacy, Security, and Digital Law section at the BBA, which I would encourage everybody to join. Um, with that, why don't I hand it around for, um, for self-introductions. Um, Sarah, why don't you pick it up? Uh, Sarah, Sarah I think you're on, you're on mute. And I'm on mute. Hi, everyone. That should be better. Uh, my, thank you, Peter. My name is Sarah Cable. Uh, I'm an assistant attorney general with the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and I'm also the uh, director of the Data Privacy and Security Unit, which is um, a unit in the office that uh, handles essentially all civil enforcement and investigation matters um, concerning uh, the Massachusetts data protection law and the consumer protection law as it applies to um, uh, the collection, use, and disclosure of consumers' personal data. Um, I also have the honor uh, and, and uh, taking over as co-chair for the um, BBA's Privacy, Cybersecurity, and Digital Law section from Peter. Uh, very big shoes to fill, um, uh, and I'll second Peter's um, uh, encouragement. It's, a, it's an awesome dynamic section, so everyone should check it out. Um, and I'll just close and, and hand it off to Scott. I, I have to give the disclosure that my comments are in my personal capacity and not official policy or statements of um, the Attorney General or her office. Thank you. Hi, I'm Scott Edmiston. I'm the Director of Research Data Privacy and Security Compliance at Harvard Medical School. So in that role, I oversee a number of uh, computationally based uh, re research projects involving sensitive medical data. Um, prior to, to that, I was a uh, um, privacy specialist at the Federal Office for Civil Rights enforcing the HIPAA privacy rule. And um, like Sarah, I'm speaking for myself and not the president of fellows of Harvard University. And Lisa? Yes, hi. Uh, Lisa Thompson here. I'm a partner at Robinson and Cole. I represent healthcare companies, biotech companies, and life sciences companies uh, in a broad range of um, areas, including privacy and security, among others. I'm also an American Arbitration Association uh, arbitrator and um, looking forward to participating in this panel. Terrific. So before we go any further, um, one, thank you, and then some ground rules. The thank you is to Lisa for bringing us all together, for preparing the slides, for preparing 
uh, us for the for the questions. Um, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So thank you, Lisa. Um, and then ground rules. Um, I know it's uh, a little different to do this in Zoom. There is the opportunity to pose questions. We are going to try to incorporate answers to questions as we go. If we are unable to get to any, we will make sure to answer them as best we can following the panel. So with that, Daniel, if you wouldn't mind jumping to the next slide. Okay, so let's set this up, right? Um, for any of you who have, uh, have had any sort of um, long-term medical conditions, at least part of this will, will look familiar. Um, there is a hospital, that we're gonna call it hospital, um, and there's a staff physician who uses a remote application-based tool uh, for patients with a chronic condition. And they can use it to input um, a variety of data that we'll get to. The app developer is a small IT company, a technology company out on the 128 belt. And the, the app collects via sensor temperature, blood pressure, number of other physical measures, including patient activity, and, and in order to get patient activity, GPS data and location. And then there is a daily depression and alcohol use questionnaire screen that, that people can input. Um, data is input automatically from the sensor, and we're just gonna update a bit um, that the, the data goes automatically from the sensor to the phone. And then the data is transmitted to the hospital's secure EMR system because this has been enabled by the, the staff physician and the data is stored by the hospital, uh, maintained by the hospital and the copy is stored by the app service in its cloud. So first, Scott, let, let me turn to you. In order for you to start to evaluate this scenario, what more do you wanna know? What do you wanna know about the app? What do you wanna know that's about how it's set up? What do you want to know about how it's secured? So usually when I approach these kinds of, of issues and the way I think a lot of hospitals do is um, they, they ask two basic questions. One, as you said, what does the app do? But I think a prefatory question, which is very important is, you know, what is, what is the data? In other words, to have a data centric approach. So when you look at any kind of app, it's, it's always good to say, okay, what kind of data do we anticipate this app is going to use. And then that will tell you what kind of regulations and law apply. Um, I think a lot of hospitals use uh, a procurement function or some kind of vetting process for its vendors. Um, I would definitely want someone with a CISSP certification to look at, look at it. Um, I wanna know how does the app collect, store, and use the data? What kind of third parties is it using? Um, what kind of logging and auditing does it do? Uh, especially with the small vendors, I mean, with the large vendors, it's often like a take it or leave it when you when you look at the end user license agreement. But with small vendors with with these apps, um, I think it's very important to to try to talk to the the people directly and not just send them a questionnaire, but ask them about how they do their continuous monitoring or what other kinds of data security questions. So it's very especially important when when their the team might not be uh, as large or have as much support as as other other companies. Right. And Scott, what, is, what does it mean to you that, that the vendor has access to the data on their system? Is that 
normal? Is it shocking? Is it something that you want to look at differently? Yeah, so how it connects to the EMR is crucially important. So there are different ways to do that. So a number of large hospitals have um, large EMR vendors like Epic, Cerner, Allscripts, and, and, and those types. And, and in the old days, they were very hostile to kind of integration with apps. But in, in more recent times, um, open APIs and, and other kinds of open standards like, like FHIR, the Fast Health Interoperability Resource Standard, and other federal initiatives have, have enabled that kind of integration. So you, you'd really want to know what kind of API they're using or, or how they're going to integrate. Um, yeah, it's a crucial question. I mean, how, what, how they're going to connect and um, what data they have is, is, is vitally important. Right, right. So, so Lisa, th there are any number of regulatory questions um, we can ask here. I'm going to ask you just a few, and I'm going to start with one that I think we sort of have to ask about and then pivot off because it could be its own seminar. But could you speak briefly to what FDA um, issues or concerns we might have here? Sure. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. All right. Well, if the FDA considers this app to be a medical device, uh, it would be on the grounds that it's intended for the use in the diagnosis or cure, the mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease. And if they do consider it to be an app on that basis, and it's not subject to an exception, which there are a number of exceptions for certain software applications, you'd have to really analyze that carefully then the FDA would expect that there be sufficient cybersecurity controls in place in the design validation from the manufacturer in their pre-market submission for clearance or approval. There's published guidance on this, and it's important to understand that FDA's primary concern is not patient privacy, really, but rather whether a cyber threat could result in patient harm. Got it. Got it. And, and, and I think as, as we've discussed before this seminar, that could be a whole seminar in and of itself, couldn't it? That's right. Absolutely. So let's, so let's turn to the thing that since, since this is um, a discussion about, about privacy um, principally and privacy in a, in, a, in, a, in a health emergency, which is our next big slide, um, Talk to us about the, the privacy issues and, and particularly the HIPAA issues that, that you see here. Okay. Well, and, and really before we even get to the layer of public health emergency, in looking at what's going on here, we want to take a look at how the arrangement is structured with the app company. If, in fact, this app, there is an agreement in place, let's say, between the hospital and the app company, where the app company is actually providing services on behalf of the hospital or for the hospital, okay, then in that case, they're obtaining PHI for the hospital, and we would want to see a business associate agreement in place because under HIPAA, they would be considered a business associate most likely. Uh, HIPAA then specifies certain minimum contract terms that have to be in the BAAs. Um, so we would want to see that in place and, of course, you know, make sure that they have um, adequate security measures. Many times the hospital will have a, uh, a security questionnaire, certain criteria that they expect of their subcontractor business associates. Now, 
on the other hand, if it's an agreement, let's say just between the patient and the app company, so the patient wants to use this app, let's say there's a user end user agreement with the patient, the patient's essentially instructing the app company to collect their data and provide it to the hospital. And the hospital in that case is really functioning just as a receiving entity for this information from the patient. So as if the app is an information courier for the patient, leading to some kind of sort of virtual handoff of data from the patient to the hospital. And you would not need necessarily need a business associate agreement in that case, but would have to be very carefully analyzed to just figure out what the layers are. And there's a fine line between the two examples. Terrific, thank you, Lisa. So, so Sarah, your, your head must be spinning with possibilities at this point. Are there, are there, are there issues that you see already? Are there things that you're going to be looking out for um, in case in case people uh, decide that there's greater utility to this? Yes, I think, and I think you you hit the nail on the head. Is that um, these these you know we all know where this hypothetical is going, right? Data starts one where one place for one purpose, and it's going to end up some very different place for a very different purpose. Um, from my perspective, you know, I, I would look at this hypothetical through the lens of our Consumer Protection Act and our data protection laws. Um, I think the data protection laws, uh, the essentially requirement to um, safeguard uh, personal information, don't clearly apply to this scenario um, only because there's a, a pretty narrow set of personal information that um, those regulations cover and it essentially social security numbers, financial account numbers, driver's license numbers. They don't, the, the regulations don't cleanly apply to um, the same kind of data that HIPAA might, might govern. Um, and, and, but, but that doesn't mean there's not an obligation here. And our Consumer Protection Act, I think is really where um, I'd be looking in analyzing uh, this scenario for concerns. And what that law says, um, and it's quite literally says, uh, uh, unfair or deceptive acts or practices in trade or commerce are prohibited. It doesn't give much more uh, definition than that. And it's a fact specific and very flexible standard. Um, you'll see terms like dishonest, uh, unfair deceptive practice is one that's unethical or it violates norms of fair, fair dealing, or quite simply, it, it, it violates some other law that's in place to protect consumers. And there you could say if it violated HIPAA, then it may also be a violation of the Consumer Protection Act. So it's, it's a, a very flexible law. As I would apply it here, I think I would be um, looking at this with three guiding principles in mind. Um, first, is this data uh, being collected, used, and disclosed in a fair, transparent, and lawful way? Transparent to the consumer, that is. Um, is it being used and collected and um, disclosed in a manner that's consistent with the consumer's reasonable expectations, given the context in which the data has been collected? And then is it being used for the benefit of the consumer, or at the least not to the consumer's detriment. Is it, the concern would be that this data would somehow be leveraged unfairly against the consumer or used in some way to harm the consumer, um, you know, uh, physically or, or more likely financially or in, in some sort of um, uh, way that violates their privacy. 
So um, at this point, I think the questions or the, the facts I would, I'm most zeroing in on, uh, similar to what Scott referenced and what um, Lisa referenced, what data is being collected here. We have some pretty sensitive data. I'm looking particularly at location data. Um, uh, I, pres I presume that's real-time location data. I'm looking at uh, depression, alcohol use. Th these, are, these are quite personal uh, bits of information. Uh, that could be misused or leveraged against a consumer. How is this data being collected? Is this uh, through, is the sensor transmitting through Bluetooth to a phone? Um, there are security concerns involved in that. Uh, that would have to be analyzed. Who has access to this data and where is it being stored? And to me, this is the most concerning question. Under the scenario here, I count at least five separate entities that are coming into contact with this data, the physician, the patient, the developer of the app, the EMR provider, and the cloud provider. But certainly there's more. Um, I think Scott alluded to this. Uh, other folks at the hospital uh, presumably would have access to this data. Um, vendors and other service providers of the hospital or its EMR system might have access to this data. The manufacturer of the patient's smartphone could very well get access to this data. The patient's internet provider, to the extent the data transfer is happening using um, an internet connection or Wi-Fi. Service providers and, developer, uh, and vendors of the developer, and any platform the developer might uh, uh, market the app on. Uh, is this gonna be uh, in, uh, on the Apple Store, the, the, the Google Play Store? Um, uh, those platform companies also sometimes will have access to the data. So. Um, to me, where this data can, can flow outside of this um, limited group of five is something that I'd be very much focused on. Lastly, what is the purpose of this data collection and is that clear to the consumer? It doesn't, I think we're all assuming the purposes here are for the medical treatment of the patient and presumably some sort of larger, uh, it's to the larger public health benefit. That is not entirely made clear. And I also noticed there's no limitations on the part of either the hospital or the developer as to other unrelated uses of this data. And I think to me that absence of limitation is particularly concerning because um, data can be monetized and used in a lot of very valuable ways by a lot of different entities. And um, it, the further it gets from direct care to the patient, the more problematic um, uh, the issues become. So um, that's the sort of framework, I think, that I'm looking at this scenario. And then as we develop the hypo hypothetical, that's going to be the framework that I'm going to be using to evaluate the situation. Peter, you may be on mute. Sorry. So one, one question before we move on, because it's going to be such a critical part of the discussion as we, as we evolve the scenario. How do you expect that consumers will gain an understanding, a reasonable expectation of how the data will be used. Is it, is it through the, the README file? Is it through something on their website? Is it through the way they interact with the app? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Talk about yep, that. I mean, surely it would be in any privacy policies. And I'm sorry, Peter, was that, I assume that was a question for me? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, of course, uh, I would presume and hope that there is a privacy policy um, 
by the developer that is communicated to the consumer. Again, that's not clear in this hypothetical. Um, it is something that is, um, if not required by, by law, it is required by custom. Um, and it often is, is required by the platforms that um, allow the, that, you know, market the app to have uh, some kind of privacy policy. So that would be the first place I would look. But I also think that there are implied uh, understandings on the patient's part as to um, uses of the, of the data um, in consumer protection law, just because you tell the consumer one thing, uh, if you do something very different with the data here, um, the fact that you didn't disclose that or, or you didn't preclude that doesn't necessarily get you off the legal hook. Um, I think it's, it's very important, not just to the consumer, but of course to subsequent recipients of this data that the consumer is, is very well aware of um, the purposes that this data is going to be put to and, and other purposes um, and the circumstances under which the data might, might flow. Terrific. Okay, so well, I promise you we're going to come back to that as we evolve this scenario. So, um, Daniel, if you don't mind flipping to the next slide. So, we're in the middle of a public health emergency. And as it turns out, patients with this condition are at increased risk from COVID-19. Um, the app is modified by the hospital to obtain additional data on the virus and antibody testing results. And it stores the data as before um, on the cloud in the hospital EMR system. And now the local health department goes to the hospital and says, wow, we'd really like all of this data, including since you have it, all of the geolocation data, because that will help us know about active cases, but it will also let us know um, where people have been and, and let us know about plumes of activity, which um, for those of you who've been following um, is something that actually was being tracked by the Israeli government earlier this spring with, with active cases there. So, so Scott, talk to us about this situation. You're at the hospital. And uh, the state, the uh, the the, um, um, the local health department comes to you and says, "We'd like all of this data." H how do you respond? Up, oh, you're on mute, Scott. Um, I think my first response would be um, just to look at what we what we can disclose, um, what we should disclose, and what are some of the, the legal limitations. I think one of the first things that, that comes up with regard to reporting to public health agencies um, is re-identification risk. So when you mention uh, geolocation data, um, whether it's Israel or even the Trace Together app in, in Singapore and some of the other um, apps that are coming out, um, geolocation is definitely a, a feature that's being looked at, but that that presents definitely presents re-identification risk. And under the minimum necessary principle under HIPAA and under the minimum necessary principles of other data privacy frameworks, um, we want to minimize those to the extent possible. I don't. Uh, others can chime in, but I'm not. I don't know if there's a, a specific law that would prevent that specifically, but it does definitely raise an issue in terms of privacy interests. Lisa, could you, could you speak to that? 
how would you respond to this as the as the lawyer for the hospital? Okay, well, you know, first I would my my first reaction would be to think that well, this this sounds like it's a public health activity. And HIPAA does allow covered entities to provide PHI, protected health information, without patient authorization for certain public health emergent uh, activities. And they allow that uh, information to be provided to a public health authority, which would include a political subdivision of a state that's responsible for public health matters. So presumably, which we never like to use that word, presumably the local health authority would have that um, um, mandate. Nevertheless, in this case, we would want to confirm that this is within the scope of authority for the local public health department. Typically, what I would do as a minimum is ask the authority to make a formal request in writing for the information they're seeking and confirm their authority to collect and receive the information. Um, depending on how the information is transmitted, we also would want to make sure this is the only purpose for what for which it's going to be used by the public health authority that which is within their um mandate and in that case it may be prudent to try to get a memorandum of understanding or some other agreement in place between the hospital and the public health authority though that's absolutely not necessary uh, under hipaa it's not like a business associate arrangement or anything like that so um that's how I typically would handle it. So, so Sarah, here is the public health authority coming to the, the hospital and saying, we'd like all of this data. Do you have any thoughts, any concerns about either the security of this or what the consumer knows about it real time or when they're signing up? Can you talk about those issues? I can, yeah. I, I should premise this with, um, uh, from my time at the office, which has uh, been over eight years, uh, uh, we've not had this scenario happen. <laughs> so um, I think it's safe to say we're in a bit uncharted territory here. Um, with regard to the sharing of the data with the local health department, you know, I think um, the, the consumer protection law um, affirmatively says if you're doing something that is permitted by federal law or some other law, it, it's not an unfair deceptive act. So, you know, to the extent that this is something that um, is, is contemplated and covered by and permitted by HIPAA, I don't, I don't think there would be a, a, a question of whether it was unfair or deceptive. Um, and again, I think this would be um, within the realm of reasonable expectation of a consumer. Um, uh, it gets a little stickier with the subsequent sharing of the data with emergency response um, personnel. Um, but that I think raises some potential questions of civil civil liberties that um, as a you know employee of a government agency law enforcement agency are probably not um, ones I'm, I'm, I'm suited to answer um, I think from a security perspective again because we're not talking about um, social security numbers or financial account information the Massachusetts data security regulations strictly wouldn't apply Nonetheless, um, uh, they, they do provide some minimum safeguards, um, particularly focused around the transmission of data over public networks, uh, public Wi-Fi. And I guess my questions here would be, how, how are we protecting the data through, as it travels um, from the patient all the way to the emergency 
um, response personnel. Um, I'm also um, very concerned about the proliferation of endpoints we've just introduced into this mix, right? So an endpoint would be where does the data end up? Is it going to end up on the uh, 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 smartphone of an emergency responder? If there's 500 emergency responders in this town, you've now got 500 endpoints. Um, where will the data end up at the local health department? Is it going to go to one workstation? And if so, will, be, will that be protected by a password? Will it be a password shared with every single city employee? Right, so it, I think um, from a security perspective, we've now raised, um, scaled up the potential risk surface area quite a bit here. And I think um, having track of who's accessing the data from what devices is going to be critically important and making sure that those access points have adequate security around them. And I, Peter, I, Peter, I have something to add also to the HIPAA um, element um, in follow-up to what Sarah just said. And that is that the uh, hospital would have provided the patient uh, with a notice of privacy practices when they first went for treatment. And in that notice, uh, there would be some statements around the various uh, uses that they're going to, and disclosures that they were going to be making of the patient's uh, medical data. And just to let, you know, inform them, let them know about this. And one of those typically would be uh, for various public health activities. So the patient would have that notice. So, so let me just ask, before we move on to our, to our next bit, which explores this a bit further, let me ask, do any of you have thoughts on which of the data here you'd be more and less likely to share? I mean, if a public health authority came to you and said, we'd love all of this data. Scott, let's throw it to you since you're, you're in this role in the hospital. Would you say to them, do you really need the alcohol and depression data? Do you, do you really need exact location data? Is there anything we can strip out? Is that, is that a regular conversation to have in this sort of a scenario? Well, I, I don't actually work in a hospital. I work at a medical school, but definitely right. from a privacy standpoint, I would want to have two hard conversations on the, those level. One, just as you sort of suggested, I want to make sure that they know exactly what data they're asking for. I want to know exactly what they're using it for and what kind of legal authority they're doing it. And I would want it in writing um, from, a, from a duly authorized individual. That's number one. On the second level, the hypothetical mentions real-time data. And I, some alarm bells go off when I see real-time data and I think of a hot connection versus asynchronous connections. So if you have a hot connection, you know, where there's real-time streaming data, that presents a lot more data security issues than if you send it over a, a secure connection on a periodic basis. And there's some of those other data security issues you can, you can examine in the separate conversation. And usually when you talk to a, a, a public health authority, they, they turf that over to a, a, a technical team, the IT department within their, their um, office. Got it. Thank you. So, so Daniel, if you wouldn't mind going, and we'll we'll layer on a little bit more here. Peter, before we leave, I just wanted to mention one other thing, and that is under HIPAA, I would only allow the uh, release of the information that is within the scope of the authority of the of the of the this local health authority. Nothing outside of that. So, for example, you mentioned the uh, drug and al I mean, the alcohol screening, for example. 
Absolutely not. That's not part of the information that would be under the mandate if, if in fact, what they're doing is collecting information um, for use in the COVID public health emergency. That's really helpful. Thank you, Lisa. So, so now it starts to get fun, right? Employers want to know who can come back into their offices. And so they approach the hospital and they say, wow, um, you have some of our employees visiting your hospital. We need to know who can go back into the workplace. And there is no better data to know whether somebody can come back into the workplace than having this real-time data that you're collecting that's on people's phones. Um, let me ask, Scott, what, what's your initial impression of sharing this over with the employer? Um, does not sound like a good idea. <laughs> um, I think that whenever you're talking about a, a private employer asking for sensitive data from um, um, uh, a healthcare provider or any kind of public health authority, uh, alarm bells should go off. I think there are a lot of other other ways that can that they can obtain information that would help them in this regard. So, we saw um, so, under HIPAA. Is this even? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, so under HIPAA, um, there's actually a, uh, a rule that you know prevents um, information from going. To, from a, a health record to your, your human resources records. And there, there's some pretty clear language about that. Um, I think that a lot of employers want to do due diligence around protecting employees and quarantine. And there are some means that they're doing so are asking individuals to self-report some things. And, but I, I have not seen instances where they would ask or that institutions would supply um, identifiable information on employees to an employer. So Lisa, let me ask you, can you see a scenario under HIPAA where this would be allowed or any portion of this would be allowed? Well, you know, the HIPAA, one thing first to just lay out in terms of HIPAA, because I think it's important to really understand everybody's roles here, is that health information that is maintained in employment records, let's say there is information in the employment records of a health nature that's maintained by the employer in their role as employer is not PHI under HIPAA. So once it gets to them in that role, um, it is HIPAA no longer applies, okay? So what we're really talking about is before it comes over there. So while it's still over at the hospital, if we were talking about the employer as a self-funded health plan, HIPAA would apply to the information that they're holding for the purpose of the health plan, okay? So one thing to understand about this information is it morphs in terms of whether HIPAA applies to it or not, depending on who's holding it and for what purpose. So back to the hospital. The HIPAA concern does, as you've identified, um, and lies in the hands of the hospital, and one of the things that can happen here under HIPAA is that the employer could say to the employee, we need you to sign an authorization for the hospital to release this information to us. And in fact, directing the hospital to do that. If that's the case, then the hospital not only can release the information, but if the patient is directing them to do it, 
they have to under HIPAA. So, you know, it's one thing if the employer just presents the authorization, it's another if they in, have another layer of directing the information to come to them, which transfers it from a permissive um, aspect to uh, something that actually is not only required, you have to do it within a certain period of time. So um, there also are other, uh, other provisions under HIPAA that do permit an employer uh, to obtain certain health information about an employee, um, but those are not applicable here. More where the hospital is providing healthcare at the request of the employer to, to conduct, um, to evaluate whether the individual has a work-related illness, although it also is relating to medical surveillance of the workplace, um, there are certain times that under that uh, regulation, the information could be released also, but the employer would need to have the findings in order to comply with legal obligations to record the illness or injury themselves, okay? Uh, or carry out responsibilities for workplace surveillance. So it's possible that during this public health emergency, the employer may actually get those duties. And in that case, the um, HIPAA would allow the hospital to release the information. There's a notice provision to the individual that this is going to happen and um, you know other protections in there. But um, there, there are mechanisms for the information to go over from the hospital to the employer. So, so, so Sarah, Lisa has established that there is a scenario under which this would be um, permissible legally. Um, my, my skin's starting to crawl a little bit. I, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want my patients, I don't want my patients to feel as though they shouldn't use apps that would help their health uh, right. because their employers might get it. But am I, but am I going over the edge here? What, what do you think? No, I mean, I mean, look, like this, I, I think uh, this is a bit, employment law, could, you could spend a whole day or two uh, on the privacy implications that are, are going to be coming down the pike or already coming down the pike given our current scenario. Um, uh, and I think here, my reaction was, I think the more likely hypothetical here would be that the employer might approach the hospital uh, might talk to Lisa and say, I don't want to do all that. Who's the app developer? I'm just going to get the data directly from the developer. So that to me seems more, that's more the, the scenarios I, that come across my desk. And that's, and that's the, um, that gets me back to some of my initial questions, which is what are the purposes of the collection of this data by each of the entities that are first getting it? Hospital, doctor, you know, we, we can sort of presume what those uses are. What is the app developer's purpose in collecting this data? To me, it turns in part on how is this developer getting paid? Because the, the app could be offered to hospitals on a, a, a license fee basis, in which case the developer is getting paid with actual money, or more likely, the uh, payment is in the form of data. And so in exchange for a free app, the developer gets an extremely rich real-time stream of data the question I would have as a regulator is, what is a developer going to do with that data? And to get that back to my point with the first slide, there's no express, uh, no explicit limitations on the developer's use of the data as set forth in the scenario. Here's one example of a use that a developer looking to monetize the data might make. The de 
developer may offer on the side, you know, a, a service directed towards employers, um, you know, find out which employees are safe to come back. And so the, the issues there is this is far afield of what the consumer expected, presumably. Um, I guess it could have been laid out in the app privacy policy, but again, I wouldn't use that app <laughs> if, that were, if that were laid out. Um, you know, in my mind, the issues that come to mind are regular employment law. I'm thinking particularly about the Americans with Disability Act, right? So it's one thing for employers to get this data, how are they going to act on it? And, and, and which populations of your workforce are going to bear the brunt of that? And is, is this all of a sudden turning into conduct that would run afoul of anti-discrimination laws? Um, not to mention the impact of the morale on your employees from doing this. So um, this is obviously very concerning. HIPAA aside, um, this is where my antennas start to really tingle um, and, and see that we now have um, arguably an undisclosed use of this data for purposes that might be leveraged against a, a consumer. And Peter, I had one other, I, I seem to always chime in with another HIPAA idea <laughs> that Sarah uh, prompted me around, and that is the patient authorization is going to be specific as to what information is to be provided. So for example, in this case, they're not going to have on there that they're going to get the uh, uh, depression screen, okay? Um, and it will have a purpose and so forth in the authorization. So there are some protections within the authorization as well. And again, the, uh, then the onus is on the hospital to make sure that that's the only data that gets released. I think sometimes the challenge with databases uh, and data uh, files like this is to have an adequate filter that in fact allows you to go in and pick and choose what's being released. That's vitally important in situations like this where everybody's coming at you from different sides trying to get your data. And those are often not the first thing that an app developer or somebody like that even thinks about right? And the EMR, you know, receiving this data may or may not have those filter capabilities. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. So let's, let's do this. Let's turn to our next, um, our next slide, Daniel, um, because I think we're going to be getting deeper into this issue of, of what data can be used. Um, so now we turn to clinical research. So a researcher who is also at the same hospital um, is working with a study sponsor um, that's a pharmaceutical manufacturer to study existing medication to treat COVID-19. Um, the researcher wants to use the app data um, maintained by the hospital to determine whether certain patients might be eligible to participate in a clinical trial. So this is not for the clinical trial itself, but it's simply to determine who might be appropriate for the trial. I want plan to have the treating physicians contact the patients. Researcher requests access to the app data in the EMR so that they can figure out who they're going to approach. Scott, what, what, do, you, what do you think about this? And, 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 and to, to set it up, let's go back to what Lisa just closed with, which is there's data and then there's data. What data would you feel comfortable sharing and under what circumstances? Well, I think some of the issues that we're dealing with in this public health crisis are, are novel. The technology of apps is very novel. The law is very much in flux. But the good, well, the, the, but 
when we're talking about clinical research in hospitals and uses of data for clinical research, there's pretty well-established rules under the common rule and uses of IRB that govern how clinical data can be used for research purposes. So when you have um, any kind of clinical data, usually the hospital will not want to make sure if you want to recruit someone, recruit research subjects to study that you have an IRB review it and then um, issue some kind of a waiver of authorization under HIPAA to allow recruitment of individuals. Um, so I think that's generally how, how, that, how that would work. I think um, um, if the, the, the physician is, has a treatment purpose that's ethically uh, profoundly different than uh, his research hat for, for the pharmaceutical company. And um, hospitals usually have pretty well-established procedures for making sure that those roles are, are managed. Terrific. So I'm not going to let you off the hook. Daniel, if you would, mind, wouldn't mind going to the next slide. Oops, that's just filling out. So let's um, let's go to the next one. There we go. So now, <laughs> yeah, I was getting ahead of myself. Right. So here you go. So the hospital and the researcher want to contribute certain app data to a national research registry. So you're no longer within the same hospital. Um, the research registry is supported by a private foundation. Um, and in return for sharing this data, a hospital and researcher would receive very valuable aggregate information on the condition that could be used for research, that could be used for care. Um, the data can be either de-identified or it can be a HIPAA-limited data set, and the data would be used for clinical research and broadly for public health. Does, does this change your analysis at all? Is this to you a different situation? Um, I, I think when an individual goes in for, for treatment, there's usually some kind of um, authorization that hospitals use that you know, specify whether it can be um, used for something like a registry or um, so I think it, there would be a similar analysis in the sense that you know, data can be contributed either as de-identified or a limited data set. If it's de-identified, you have many fewer regulatory hurdles to overcome, and limited data sets can always be shared if there's a, a valid um, HIPAA data use agreement. So I think maybe and, Lisa, and can, your, Lisa, Lisa can jump in here. Uh, Lisa, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. And I just um, building on what um, what Scott said, I think of this as three different approaches that can be made. Uh, the first is always disclosure with patient authorization, right? Uh, written patient authorization, um, that their information can be disclosed. Uh, second is disclosure after obtaining a waiver of authorization uh, from the IRB or privacy board. And finally, as Scott said, a disclosure of a limited data set. Those are three separate approaches that you can take. So if you have patient authorization, okay, you can disclose it to the registry for these purposes, no problem. Uh, but it, of course, has to be only that data that is authorized within the patient's authorization, uh, not to go beyond that. So again, your filter comes into place. Next, disclosure with the waiver of authorization. 
Um, there are very specific requirements to obtain a waiver, and I don't want to go into them right now, but essentially the, there are requirements for when you ask for a waiver, that you really need this information, you can't go back and get the patient's um, authorization and various other things, and then there are criteria that the IRB or Privacy Board themselves have to look at uh, as well. Now, the limited data set is, I think, a very uh, interesting way to approach this because you don't need the patient authorization and you don't, under HIPAA at least, need the IRB or privacy um, approval um, waivers. Uh, with the limited data set, this is a set of information under HIPAA that has some identifiers, but not very many. So you really couldn't at first glance, or even with some additional research, likely you would not be able to figure out who this patient was, okay? And when you have that data set prepared and your filter is working and you're able to provide that data set, you can in fact then contract with other parties and they're allowed to use that information for research or public health purposes, but they have to enter into an agreement with you, with the hospital called a data use agreement, which is an unfortunate term because it also is a generic term in the industry for data use agreements just between parties and using data. Under HIPAA, that also is a very specific definition that has a list of characteristics, things like we agree to only use it for this purpose. If we share it with someone else, we're gonna enter into an agreement that they agree to use it only for those purposes. And that probably is the path of least resistance if the data is robust enough in a limited data set um, for the ultimate um, entity that's receiving the data. Terrific, thank you, Lisa. So with our final bit of this scenario, we're gonna break it wide open. Daniel, if you wouldn't mind going to the next slide. And, and Sarah is gonna be a kid in a candy store here. Um, so the registry is considering commercializing and, and, and selling the data, um, tremendously valuable, enriched data. Um, their preference is to sell limited data set or they can provide aggregated data that has been de-identified. Um, and the potential purchasers include pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturers, uh, investment firms. There are often research firms that in turn cascade, have PhDs analyze data, and then they cascade reports of all of that data out. Sarah, why don't you kick us off? What are, what are your thoughts about this, recognizing that these are either limited or de-identified data sets? Thanks, Peter. And yeah, this, so this is maybe everyone saw that this is where this is going. But I mean, this is the this is the where I thought things would go <laughs> with this uh, from the very beginning, um, uh, because data just has a way of not keeping still um, and finding its way um, to a lot of different parties. So first, I guess the issue of de-identified data um, is I, I I guess there are reasons why that is important from a, a, a regulatory compliance perspective. Um, from a technological perspective, um, there are legitimate questions of whether de-identified data can be re-identified. And in this scenario, the word or the, 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 the claim that data is de-identified is, is taken by me with a grain of salt. Because some of these companies, potential purchasers, 
The biggest purchaser I would imagine on this, that's not even on this list would be a data broker. Um, and data brokers, it is not hard to um, uh, layer on a little bit more data, um, zip code, for example, or um, uh, some other generic data and, and really quickly re-identify the data um, you know, after, it, after it's purchased. And so de-identified to me uh, doesn't necessarily let anyone off the hook. If anything, it um, raises red flags that the, the de-identification process is, is being used as um, permission to do all kinds of things with the data after you've re-identified it. So I, I think that's first, de-identified is not a, a golden ticket out of um, an issue with our office. Um, you know, second, I think obviously we are far afield from the um, initial context in which this data was collected. So looking at this from the consumer's perspective, you know, why would the consumer agree to do this at all, right? Because this all depends on the consumer agreeing to wear the sensor and share this data. And, you know, we don't know yet what the representations were made to the consumer at the time he or she agreed to do this. But it is, to me, material for a consumer to know that they essentially, their health data might be harvested for purely commercial uses in a manner that really uh, provides no benefit to them. Um, and, and I think that's important. And I think knowing that um, would be uh, material to any consumer's decision. I'm not sure I would use an app if I knew that I was literally being an unpaid, uh, you know, market research subject for some investment firm. Um, you know, the, the hypothetical here has the registry um, potentially selling this, uh, selling a limited data set. Again, I think the more realistic scenario is the app developer selling this data set. This gets back to my comment of how is the app developer making money here? Um, I, 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 the realistic scenario is that this is how the app developer is making money, is that there is a sale of the data that the app developer is getting under one pretext to other commercial buyers. Um, and again, I, this is uncharted territory for the consumer protection law. Um, not necessarily clear uh, in this scenario how it would apply, but certainly the principles that it stands for are um, in tension with the scenario. We have a lack of, arguably a lack of notice to the consumer about this purpose of his or her data, a lack of consent, therefore, a lack of discernible benefit to the consumer, and again, a potential use of harm. If this data is getting in the hands of a data broker or an investment firm, or a financial services company, might this data be used to identify those consumers who have become ill with COVID who might then have some financial burden associated with that? And is that going to be a, um, a marketing segment for um, some sort of predatory lending company to advertise their predatory loans to because they know they have a, a consumer who's in financial straits? And so, from our perspective, from the consumer protection perspective, this is incredibly rich data of, an, of a vulnerable, arguably a vulnerable population that if in the wrong hands could be used to consumers detriment without consumers even understanding that at the time they, they allowed this data to be collected. So that's just one of several concerns, but that's the primary one. You may still be on mute, Peter. 
sorry. Um, thank you so much, Sarah. Scott, Scott and Lisa, um, that was a pretty, that was a, a pretty tough potential analysis of this scenario. Um, do either of you have anything to add or any counterpoints to make about, about this, uh, about this situation? Um, go ahead, Lisa. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, first of all, under HIPAA, this, the sale of PHI is prohibited. Um, because that limited data set contains even a slice of PHI, you can't sell it unless, of course, as always, if you have patient authorization to do that. Um, they would have to have a, a signed authorization from the patient and the authorization has to state that the disclosure will result in remuneration um, to you know, the hospital or in, in this case, the authorization uh, would need to talk about the remuneration being uh, passed on through uh, to the registry. I think it becomes very complicated um, you know, to try to implement that, but nevertheless, it is there as a protection. So I guess in my world, um, there's less of an issue with pharmaceutical companies and other data brokers and other, I think, bad actors that, that Sarah is interested in um, buying the data and commercializing it. I think in a lot of biomedical research where there are disease registries, the, the technology and the practice is going in the area of federated data systems, whereby information stays at the location and the government remains at the location and people can distribute queries and obtain results that don't necessarily exit the firewalls in violation of their um, regulatory and legal obligations. So in that sense, if there's good provenance of the data, as Lisa mentioned, if it's properly authorized, it can be commercialized, but I would say the existing practice is that it's not a it is not a widespread practice for registries to commercialize data in the way that we, I think that we've just been talking about. Rather, the, the practice is, is that registries will be de-identified um, and maybe aggregated in a very uh, curated fashion. And then um, very selected researchers and methodologies are applied to obtain value from that in the clinical and translational spectrum. So there are preclinical, non-competitive stages of drug development um, where commercialization is not um, considered. But at the end point, there is an idea that drugs will be marketed and sold, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's commercialized from the invidious standpoint. And I'll just add as a, as a, as a, as a point um, to, to round that out, that has the advantage of fewer people having access to the live data set, fewer data sets traveling around, less security risk, um, sure. and curation from somebody closer to the source. Right, another point of information is that limited data sets under HIPAA are by definition PHI. So they're subject to the breach notification rule and so forth, but, but they are limited in terms of their identifiability. Lawyers get that wrong all the time. And I would add, too, that I think in terms of setting this up, uh, 
for the registry itself, the registry would not be a covered entity here. So, um, but they would, if they're only doing this as a limited data, receiving the information pursuant to a data use agreement, and they're receiving the limited data set with no patient authorization, okay, then there are absolutely those issues about uh, prohibition on sale. Sure. Um, however, if at the time the patient is, or, or prior to this data being released, the patient is approached either initially when they sign up at the, for the app or later, um, and the patient gives a, a authorization and consent to participate in the registry both, um, then their information can be shared. Once the information gets over to the registry at that point, if there's both authorization and consent, uh, consent being on the, on the research or common law side, um, then the registry, they're not subject to HIPAA, okay? They were subject to, they were subject to um, the contractual obligation under the limited data set and data use agreement if they did it that way. But if they're doing it the way where they're obtaining the information and being able to sell it or disclose it with patient consent and authorization, okay, then as long as the patient consent and authorization is clear that this is among the uses, and you, as Scott pointed out, you actually very often see something akin to this uh, in you know, drug trials, device trials, and also research registries where the patient is told that you know, one of the uses that may be made for their information would be to release it for commercial purposes. Typically that consent also says that we will use, that they will use every, um, you know, um, effort to uh, preserve the privacy, not release the names, that kind of thing. So they're very clear typically with the research subject. Now the person is now a research subject, okay, not a patient, with the research subject on exactly what data is going to go out, and so that they can be providing a true informed consent. Yeah, so if all of those, those things are true, then commercial uses would be entirely permissible, if, especially if the language says permissible for commercial purposes and for future unspecified secondary uses. Mm -hmm. Terrific. So we have gone through the, the gamut of this one. Um, I will open it up to any of you if you have any final thoughts. Um, we do have one question from the floor generally about, um, about getting into the field of privacy and cybersecurity from, um, from a, a third year law student. Um, so why don't we just uh, run through each of the speakers. Sarah, do you have anything more to say on the scenario or on the prospect of entering our, our shared endeavor? <laughs> um, I can say a little bit on both. I mean, I think, um, you know, look, th this, um, this is, again, uncharted territory from a consumer protection standpoint where we find ourselves in. Um, and uh, I, I hope by giving you some of the guideposts that I use and, and the, the, the red button or sort of hot issues that um, jump out at me um, is helpful in trying to understand how to um, design a, 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 a sort of adequate data transfer. Um, 
you know, I think the, the, the lodestar or the, the governing principle, you know, consent, 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 and informed consent by the consumer, I think is, is really um, the consumer has to be an active participant in this data collection and transfer. Um, and, uh, you know, relying on a consent at the beginning of, a, of, of the life cycle of the data, um, relying on that consent, uh, you know, multiple layers uh, and transfers down the road, the further you get, the less you can rely on that consent. And to the last point that, that was just discussed under HIPAA, you see a refreshing of the consumer's consent for the subsequent commercial uses, right? So, so consumer consent, I think, is the best thing that can be obtained, provided that consent is made on an informed basis. Um, that, that, that's the sort of prophylactically, I think, what an entity can do to um, avoid running afoul of the consumer protection law. Um, on getting into the field, you know, I think there's um, uh, obviously um, there's a professional organization, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, IAPP.org, um, which I know Peter is, is extensively involved in, um, is a great place to start um, uh, learning about the field. Um, I think just intellectual curiosity and a willing a willingness to get a little nerdy um, is probably the best characteristics. <laughs> um, the stuff is very technical. It's fascinating, but um, it is it is quite technical and detailed. And so, if you're the kind of person who enjoys that, I think you just got to get in there and um, and and get as much experience as you can. Great, thank you, Sarah. Scott, when I was in law school, when I was still starting to get into privacy law, I had so many friends, colleagues, and other people that I talked to who are starting businesses and said, hey, can you help me write the privacy policy? And it was, I found it fun, not just because I was interested in privacy, but I was learning how these people's businesses operate. You would be amazed how much information you get about a business by going through their policies and tracking how data flows. At the end of the process, I learned, I probably knew more about the business than a lot of people within the business did. So I think if you just talk to a lot of people and um, volunteer to help out in their online presence and get involved in digital transformation, um, you're going to be in a good place. Terrific. Thank you, Scott. Lisa? Well, um, it Going back to this question from the law student, um, I would say one of the best ways to get into the field is to uh, be a part of the BBA um, as a student and um, join or come to events uh, sponsored by the Privacy, Cybersecurity, and Digital Law section, also the Health Law section. We have a lot of students involved uh, in our programming and uh, attending. Uh, once we're all back uh, doing um, in-person networking, that's a terrific thing to do as well. So get on the mailing list, watch for events and come in and start shaking hands and asking people about opportunities. You'd be surprised. There are internships out there and a lot of other things that you might be able to uh, take advantage of. And the best way to do it is in person. Though these days, we might have to do it through a virtual meeting like this. Thank you, Lisa. Liz, do you have any thoughts on this? I think, uh, I think that this student has a great question. Um, one way I think it can be helpful to think about how you can um, break into a field is thinking about how you can really contribute. And so 
when you're thinking about the type of work that you want to do and the type of organization you want to do, um, you might want informational interviews with people working there and say, what are the problems you most need help with? And then take the kinds of classes and internships where you can really bring as much as you can to help with their most challenging problems um, to help them move forward. And we're all really happy to meet with you and definitely feel free to reach out through the BBA um, to seek connections with people um, who would be happy and excited to you. Terrific, thank you, Liz. I will just add uh, from my own experience, I, I teach privacy law now. Um, I've been in the field, um, what feels like an eternity, and it's changing weekly. Um, the, the COVID issues, the public health emergency issues are different than the issues that we faced a few years ago with elections, uh, different from the breach issues we faced a few years before that. This is uh, one of the most exciting and one of the most rapidly developing fields. And I think as a result um, is a great opportunity for anybody to jump in with both feet. Um, and Boston is a great place to do it with universities, financial services, healthcare, um, technology, all of the elements and all of the players are here. Um, and I would second what everybody said about the, the BBA and about the IAPP. So, with that, I'd like to thank you all. This was tremendous content and a wonderful discussion. And Daniel, I will hand it back over to you. All right, uh, thank you all very much. It looks like there are no outstanding questions. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Um, we will be sending out uh, these slides and a link to the recording of this presentation in the next few days, likely next Monday or Tuesday. Um, and we thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you to the panelists for participating. And we hope that you'll join us again for another webinar soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank everyone. You.